I'll invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn once again to the book of Hebrews. We're in the second last chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And this morning we will be studying verses 1 to 17 together. This is our act of worship as a church. Often we just think of worship as the songs we sing. But no, when we come together as the body of Christ, everything we do is worship corporately. The songs we sing, the prayers we praise, the, op- the prayers we pray, the offerings we give, everything we do is an act of worship before our God. And so when we study scripture together, this is among the highest aspects of worship that we come together to do. So would you join me in rising out of reverence for God's holy word as we read Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 17. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Life is hard sometimes, isn't it? Christian life is hard. The Christian race is long. And maybe we thought there'd be more joy and happiness along the way. And yet all we seem to see is pain and suffering. 
And sometimes we may feel like giving up, like throwing in the towel, like waving the white flag of surrender. But Scripture calls us to endurance, to put one foot in front of the other, to keep going. So how do we cope in life's hardships? How do we navigate the suffering that we experience? When we get to the end of our rope, how do we hang in there? The truth of Scripture this morning tells us where our hope is found. When we need to run this difficult Christian race, it's found in Jesus Christ. He is the one we look to. He is the one through whom we enter the family of God and can call God our own Father. And He is the one by whom our standing in the family of God is maintained. We have great hope to endure, to keep on running the race set before us. And in our passage this morning, we're going to look at three points and three sections of our passage. First of all, our first point this morning is to follow Christ's endurance. That's verses 1 to 3. And second point this morning, is that we need to understand that God has ordained our hardship. That's verses 4 to 13. And thirdly, we're called to value our birthright. Verses 14 to 17. So follow Christ's endurance. Understand that God has ordained our hardship. And value your birthright. So let's begin with our first point this morning by looking at verses 1 to 3. Follow Christ's endurance. Are you feeling weary in your Christian walk? Do you need to endure hardship? Are you looking for help? Hebrews points us to Christ as our great example of endurance in the face of suffering. As we said last week, Jesus Christ is standing at the finish line, cheering us on as we run our own race. But why is he standing there? Because he has already finished his race that he ran ahead of us. He's already been through it all. And what a great comfort that is, knowing that Jesus has run the same race that we are running in and knowing that he has finished it ahead of us. He is not some distant official who's watching us run from a distance. He is not some spectator who has no direct experience of what it feels like to run in the race. He's not just the organizer or the sponsor of the race. No, he also participated. He got in there and he ran the race himself. And that's why he can be standing at the finish line. He knows what turn number three is like because he ran it. He knows how long that middle stretch feels like because he too went through it. He knows how tough that incline is at the end to run up that hill because he did it too. Jesus knows all about what you're going through this morning because he walked a mile in our shoes. Because Jesus ran with endurance. He is our great example to follow so that we also will run with endurance. And that's why verse 2 bids us to look to him, not to anything or anyone else. 
when it comes to persevering, when it comes to hanging in there, everything in our peripheral vision ought to fade away so that we focus on the most important person in our race, Jesus Christ. And in effect, we're not so much running for the finish line as we are running toward Him. Our goal is not to break the tape of the finish line. No, our goal is to fall exhausted into the arms of our precious Savior. We look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. We have no faith that is outside of Jesus. It's Jesus at the starting blocks. It's Jesus down the middle stretch. And it's Jesus at the finish line. When Jesus ran his race, he looked forward to the joy that was set before him at his finish line. The joy of ruling over the universe at the right hand of God the Father. And that's how he could look past the cross. That's how he could endure the cross and scorn its humiliation. He looked past the cross to the joy that was set before him. And so what do we look past? Or what is the joy that we look past our suffering? What is our joy that is set before us? What do we look to as we gaze beyond our own hardships and suffering? Well, the joy that is set before us is Jesus himself. He is the one we're looking to out of the starting blocks. He's the one we're looking to down the middle stretch. And he's still the one that we have our eyes fixed on as we near the finish. It is when we take our eyes off of Jesus that we begin to notice how hard the race is. We begin to feel the pain in our knees, our feet, our back. We begin to notice how labored and wheezy our breathing is. The race begins to feel long and overwhelming. We feel how thirsty and dehydrated we are. We feel dizzy and lightheaded. We may start to wonder, why am I doing this? We may start to think about how nice it would be just to stop and forfeit the race. This is what can happen when we take our eyes off of Jesus. I always think of Peter getting out of the boat and walking toward Jesus on the water and how he was fine as long as he was looking to the Lord. But when he began to notice the wind and the waves around him, and when he took his eyes off of the Lord, that's when he began to sink down. And the very same thing can happen to us very easily. We take our eyes off of Jesus as the joy that's set before us. The pain of running in our race can easily overwhelm us. It is by fixing our eyes on him that gets us through it all. But does Jesus really know all about our struggles? Does Jesus really know what I personally go through, what I personally face each day? Jesus never had arthritis. Jesus never faced depression. Jesus never had cancer. Jesus didn't even get old. Jesus didn't face dementia. Jesus never had his heart broken romantically. Jesus never had to provide for a family. Jesus never lost a baby. Jesus never lost his job. Jesus didn't have to worry about his bills. Jesus didn't know the grind of a stressful job in the GTA. How can we really say that Jesus has run my race? That he knows experientially 
what I am personally going through this morning? Well, the answer to that question comes in the middle of verse 2. He endured the cross. And the cross trumps anything and everything that we might face. Whatever hardships we might be facing, we must understand that the cross was worse. No, Jesus didn't have arthritis as far as we know, but he endured the cross, which was far worse. No, Jesus never faced dementia or cancer or depression or even old age, but he endured the cross, which was far worse. No, Jesus didn't have bills to pay or a family to provide for or a stressful job, but he endured the cross, which was far worse. What we are called to endure in this life, it pales in comparison with the cross that Jesus endured. Because however bad we may have it, he had it so much worse. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus is our example to follow as we run our Christian race. When we consider what he went through, the hostility of sinners against himself, that ought to keep us from growing weary or faint-hearted. Jesus endured. Jesus persevered. Jesus hung in there. Therefore, I can too. Jesus endured on my behalf. So let me endure on his. Our second point this morning comes out of verses 4 to 13. When we are facing hardship or suffering, God wants us to understand that he has ordained that hardship for us. Let that, let that sink in for just a moment. Because that might be quite difficult to accept. When we think deeply upon this passage, though, we realize that Hebrews is saying something quite remarkable here. Let's just think about what Hebrews could have said here differently instead of what he does say. Hebrews could have said something like this. Hey, guys, I know what you're going through. You're going through a lot of suffering and hardship that you have to endure but God is just allowing it to happen. He's just permitting it to happen. He doesn't really want you to go through this. But this is just what happens when you live in a broken and fallen world. If God could set it up any differently, he would try. Because he doesn't really desire for you to have to go through all of this. But that is not what Hebrews is saying here. Hebrews says that God is disciplining us as his children. That is like saying that God is actively taking us through hardship in order to train us up. God has a purpose in what we're going through. And that purpose is found in verses 10 and 11. God purposes that we would share in his holiness and bear the fruit of righteousness. The hardship and suffering that we may face is not an accident. It's not something that, that God was just surprised by and he just allows or permits to happen. No, it's actually something that he has ordained to take us through for our ultimate good. In verse 4, Hebrews acknowledges that the Christians he is writing to have not yet had to die for their faith. 
But he is implying that that time may soon come. But even if so, Hebrews reminds us, reminds them and us, of what Proverbs chapter 3 says. That God disciplines the one he loves. So Hebrews is saying that when we face hardship and suffering, we should take heart out of the fact that God is treating us as his children, for he is disciplining us. Proverbs 3, which Hebrews is quoting, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So verse 7 continues, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? When we face hardship and suffering in various forms, our endurance produces discipline. When we realize that we are being disciplined by God, we can even be happy to understand that he is treating us as a good father disciplines his child. The word for discipline here literally means training. God is training us as his children. And how does he train us? By taking us through hardships that we must endure. And what does training include? Well, it also includes the breaking of all our lazy and sinful habits. We want to sleep in till noon. A good father wakes us up early to get a good start on the day. We want to play video games all day. A good father forces us to get off the couch and mow the lawn. We want to pull our sister's hair and make her cry. A good father gives us a good spanking to teach us not to hurt others. We want to spend all of our money on chocolate and comic books. A good father stops us and teaches us to save and invest in something better. And all of these things were painful at the time. And we may even be angry and bitter towards our father in the moment. But a good father who loves us is training us toward a better life. And Hebrews is saying that we have such a good father who is also training us through corrective discipline toward a better life. In fact, a father who does not train, a father who does not discipline, a father who does not correct, does not love his child very much because he is setting that child up for failure in love. A father who lets his child sleep in until noon and play video games all day and allows that child to pull his sister's hair and spend all of his money on chocolate and comic books, that, what is that father teaching his child? To be selfish, self-centered, and undisciplined. And that child will have a much more difficult life in the long run. And this is Hebrews' point in verse 8. So look with me at verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all of us have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. And I have to tell you, the word for illegitimate children in this verse is stronger in the Greek. Here our Bible sanitize it a little bit for us. The word that Hebrews uses here in this verse is more like a word that starts with a B and sounds like mustard. If God did not discipline us, then he'd be treating us like illegitimate children. Like children born out of wedlock. Like children born from a mistress or a slave girl and not legitimate sons and daughters. But because God disciplines us and trains us, he is treating us 
as his legitimate children. Verse 9 says, besides this, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Our earthly fathers did the best they could in disciplining us and training us. It was imperfect, yes. They made mistakes, yes. Maybe there were even some fathers who were abusive. But even the best fathers still felt short of perfection. But whether we had terrible fathers or mediocre fathers or uninterested fathers or absent fathers or decent fathers or fantastic fathers, our heavenly father, the father of our spirits, he is a perfect father. And his discipline is all wise. And he is leading us, he assures us here, he is leading us to a good end. Because he disciplines us and trains us for our good. And what is our good? Is it what we think is our good? No, it's what he thinks is our good. But what is it? Verse 10 tells us that our greatest good is to share in the holiness of God. What does it mean to share in the holiness of God? Well, ultimately it means to stand in his holy presence in heaven. This is what God is training us for and preparing us for. He's training us for heaven. But that training takes place here and now in this life. God uses hardship and suffering to make us more holy. To sanctify us. So that less and less we will depend upon ourselves and more and more throw ourselves upon him and his mercy. So that we will steadily grow less self-centered and more God-centered. So that our lives will not revolve around me, my needs, my desires, my goals, but rather God's will, God's purpose, God's kingdom. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I love the first part of that verse. Because it is so plain and self-evident. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Really? Thank you, Captain Obvious. That's right. All discipline is painful. It's not pleasant. We already knew that. We were painfully aware that the discipline we are experiencing is painful. It's not pleasant at all. It's the total opposite of pleasant. Like the Apostle Paul, we yearn for the thorns in our flesh to be removed from us. Like the Lord Jesus, we beg for the cup of suffering to be passed on from us. But what we don't know and what we need to be constantly reminded of is the purpose God has in taking us through painful discipline and training. The purpose is that later on, that discipline will yield a harvest peace and righteousness. Because when we endure suffering and hardship through dependence upon God, it produces peace. 
peace with ourselves, peace with others, most importantly, peace with God. And it also produces righteousness as we grow closer to God and align ourselves with Him. Therefore, Hebrews says in verse 12, because we know that God disciplines us through suffering and that His discipline is an act of love for our good and our holiness and our righteousness, in the long run, now we can be armed with the proper attitude towards whatever hardship we find ourselves facing. Therefore, he says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make your straight make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. God wants us to understand that the suffering we experience and the hardships we endure are not accidents that he merely allows to happen to us. No, they've been ordained by him as part of his training program for his beloved children. And when we are armed with this perspective, and with this attitude, we can lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our tired knees as we run our race, looking to Jesus at the finish line. Our third and final point this morning comes out of verses 14 to 17. As we endure suffering and hardship by looking to Jesus at the finish line and understand that God has brought these things into our lives in order to train us in righteousness. The third thing that Hebrews points us to is that we have to value our birthright. We have to value our birthright. Hebrews has just been talking about fathers and sons. And now he's going to hold up Esau as an example of what a bad son looks like. A bad son does not value his birthright, and so he dishonors his father and his family. Now, what do we mean when we use the word birthright? What does that mean? It simply means a person's place in the family. So to value your birthright means to honor the place that you have in your family. So if you act like a bad son or a bad daughter, you are not honoring your family. You are not valuing your birthright. You're bringing shame and embarrassment to your parents. You're dishonoring your family name. That's not what valuing your birthright looks like. And so we have Esau. Esau was the bad son of Isaac. He was the older son. Because he was the older son, his place in the family meant that he had the greater right to inherit his father's estate. And his role was to honor his father. But Esau's younger twin brother, Jacob, was a tricky guy. One day Esau came home from hunting out in the fields. He hadn't caught anything. He was utterly exhausted. Jacob had prepared some stew that smelled fantastic to the famished Esau. And so Esau asked his brother for some of the stew. But Jacob saw an opportunity here. And he told Esau, sure, I'll give you some of my stew for a price. Trade me your birthright as the oldest son for some of the stew. And Esau basically said, well, what good is my birthright to me if I'm dead from starvation? And he made the trade. Now, from our modern perspective, that might not seem like such a big deal. But in that day, at that time, what Esau did there was extremely, extremely dishonorable. He treated his birthright like it was nothing. By trading away his birthright as oldest son for just a bowl of soup, Esau dishonored his father, his family, and his family name. He treated his place in the family as though it didn't matter. And Hebrews' point here in bringing up 
Esau and talk about Esau is that if we are part of the family of God, if we have the awesome privilege of being adopted into God's family, declared his beloved children in Christ, then we need to act like that. We need to value our place in God's family. We need to value our birthright highly. And how do we do that? How do we value our birthright? How do we value our place in God's family? Well, we do it by carrying out these practical instructions that Hebrews lists here. Verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. Well, we're called to be a people of peace if the peace of Christ fills our heart. We're also to, try to strive for holiness, it says. Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Wow. Let that statement stink, sink in within your heart, in your soul, in your mind. Let it hit you over the head like a baseball bat. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Genuine, repentant faith in Jesus Christ necessarily bears the fruit of holiness. If you claim to be a Christian and yet have no desire or no interest in pursuing holiness, I bluntly declare that you are no Christian at all. I don't care if you made a profession of faith as a child. I don't care if you've been baptized and you just took communion a few minutes ago. I don't care if you've attended church for the last 50 years. If you have no desire or interest in holiness, I'm sorry, but you're not a Christian. When God sovereignly regenerates a sinner's heart, turning it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, enabling it to be able to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, a regenerated heart necessarily desires holiness. Because a regenerated heart desires to be like God. And that's what holiness is. It's God-likeness. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be stumbles and falls and failures and continued struggle with sin, but it does mean that there will always be the desire for holiness that is never snuffed out. It will mean that you hate your sin, that you feel the full force of conviction when you fail. It will mean that you will get up for the umpteenth time and stand back up on your feet to pursue holiness once again. Genuine Repentant faith in Jesus Christ necessarily bears the fruit of holiness. Because the Holy Spirit himself is the one who regenerates the heart to be able to repent and believe. He is the one who also takes up residence there to renovate the heart by his own holiness. The Holy Spirit is so aptly named, for he is holy and he is the one making us holy. It is through pursuing holiness that we value our birthright, that we value our place in the family of God. It is through pursuing holiness that we bring honor to our Heavenly Father as we desire to be like Him. And when we understand our place in God's family, that He is our Father, and that by faith in Christ, Jesus is our big brother who has run the race ahead of us, that can also help us to endure for we are looking beyond our present circumstance and our present suffering to something bigger 
and something greater and something eternal. And so as we run our Christian race, we're called to endure the pain and the hardship it brings. We look to Jesus standing at the finish line, for he knows what it's like, for he has run the race before us. We understand that God is a loving Father who has made the, the race hard and difficult for our discipline and betterment, that he is training us for heaven. And we value our place in God's family by seeking to be like our Heavenly Father in holiness. And that's what gets us through those difficult days. Because we know that such days have a good purpose behind them. They are bringing us one step closer to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these reminders from your holy word. For there is not one of us who is left untouched by suffering, by hardship, by the by the suffering that comes from living in a fallen and broken world. But Father, how grateful I am to know that you have ordained these things. These things have not gotten by you by accident and you merely allow them or permit them. But rather you have decided that these things that all of us face are for our good and that they are under your sovereign control. There is nothing happening to us right now that you have not brought upon us. Not for our pain, not for our suffering, but rather for your good purpose to train us, to, to discipline us, to remind us that you are, you have in store for us something better and something greater and something eternal. And so, Father, help us not to miss the lesson of your discipline. Help us to grow as a result, to grow in our endurance, to grow in our dependence upon you each and every day, looking to Jesus standing at the finish line and knowing that we are part of your family, that we are co-inheritors with Christ of all your eternal blessings. We thank you once again for the gospel, Father, which is the seal of our blessing. But because of who Jesus is and what he did, we can have full assurance that we will live eternally with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we remember these things and as we meditate upon the truth of your word found in Hebrews chapter 12, that these things would be a comfort for us in our aches and pains and our sufferings and the stresses we face, all the hardships that we have in our lives various kinds. I pray, Father, that we would look to Jesus standing at the finish line, that he would be, or the joy of him would be the source of our endurance. That we would understand that your discipline means training, that you are training us for heaven. And that, yes, we are part of your family, that we are to value our birthright by growing in holiness as we endure that we can be more like you. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.